Good afternoon, and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU that's brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. And don't forget, you can always find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. My guest today needs no introduction, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Larry Glass is the president of the North Coast Environmental Center and a veteran of North Coast conservation politics low these many decades. He's also a leader of a group I've had the privilege of working with in the past, SAFE, which is, well, tell us what SAFE is, Larry. SAFE Alternatives for Our Forest Environment, formed in 1976. That was a ways back. I think I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the the news today from from SAFE is pretty interesting. It has to do with the California Department of Food and Agriculture, which is one of the key agencies that is meant to be, at least in the future, regulating the Emerald Triangle's infamous or celebrated, depending on your perspective, cannabis industry. And this case looks like it has some interesting implications for how we're going to regulate the cannabis industry. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the case, where it came from? Right. Well, even maybe reeling it back even a little bit further for our listeners, up until the state legislature declared cannabis an agricultural product, it wasn't viewed that way. Right. So the state made that determination, which then immediately put it under the bailiwick of California Department of Food and Agriculture. So since then, they are the great overseer. But one of a handful of agencies that have a piece of this overall regulatory pie. Right. So anyways, we had this case that dates back about four or five years ago that had to do specifically with a CDFA plan to spray schools, organic farms, and people's backyards for particular pests that they thought were of great threat to California's agricultural industry. And they were going to do this without any notification of the schools or people in their backyards or organic farmers. They had the ability to just come in with no notice, do it, and they didn't even have to tell you that they'd been there. Like, so even what? after... <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I'm, I've spent right. an entire lifetime cataloging the, the wackiness of, of American bureaucracy, but that's that's well, really over the top, even for a CDFA. That's, but that's Big Ag in California throws a lot of weight around, Indeed. and they, they were not in this area. We experienced this very same process back during the apple maggot right. war that CDFA waged, where they were coming into people's yards here on the North Coast and just spraying their trees without their permission and and, re, and not really telling anybody what they're doing. So if you weren't home, you didn't see the crew there, you wouldn't know that they had come in and done it. There's just that lovely smell of fresh pesticide in the morning. Oh, yeah. And they, the sites that I visited, it was still dripping from the trees. I mean, it was a wet spray. It wasn't like a gas or something. They literally drenched the trees with this. Stuff. Okay. So SAFE, among others, challenged... Right. When we heard about this originally, we sent in comments 
Surprisingly, very few other environmental groups were even aware that this was even going on. I, I understand at the time. This is not an uncommon problem, people. Well, right, because there is a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So we wound up finding ourselves in league with really health advocate groups for children, is who our best allies were as we tried it, to form a coalition to contest this because. As usual, they paid no attention to our comments. Of course, we requested at a minimum that they warn people ahead of time that they were going to do it, and then they post the area after they'd done it so people could avoid having contact with it, particularly school children in school. I have no idea what the remedy would be for an organic farm that you come in and spray with pesticides. I mean, it would take years to become recertified again. So, you know, yeah, that that comes pretty close to the level of a almost a takings. You know? Yeah. So so from 2000, well, 2012, I believe it was 2013, that time frame when this first scoping document came out. And then they decided to ignore our input, came out with their draft, ignored our input again, and it came out with their final around 2013. They have sprayed over a thousand different sites in the meantime. We tried to get a temporary restraining order against them. We tried to get a preliminary injunction against them with no success. As time went by, we had more and more people sort of dogpile in on our case. We actually got some heavy hitters to finally join in. Pesticide Action Network for one, Center for Biological Diversity for another one, along with some other bigger groups that I wasn't familiar with that were more health advocate groups. But we did get some bigger players to come in, and so we were able to move up in the world of attorneys, and we got an outfit out of the Bay Area to represent us. I should pro- I, last time I was interviewed, I didn't give their name. So it's the Shepherd, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton, along with the ATA Law Group. Those were the that was the firm that represented us. So, anyways, we challenged them on the things that we always point out. And again, you're challenging the California Department of Food right. and Agriculture here. Right. And their environmental document, their, right. their FEIR. Final Environmental Impact Report. Right. It was flawed. And one of the many things, and here's the parallel, that we pointed out was the baseline that they were using, which is you know, the the sort of place where everything then comes from. The situation you're analyzing where you start. Right. Their baseline was just made up, just like their cannabis EIR, where they just made up the baseline and and act like nothing's happened since 2010. So in in their cannabis EIR, they just said, oh, well, whatever was happening in 2010, that's where, you know, that's what's happening today. That's our starting point, yeah. You know, and that's ridiculous. And so they had a similar one in this. So we challenged the baseline. And then their cumulative effects thing, this is the one that's always coming up short on all these, whether it's the feds doing it or the state doing it. They never want to look at the really bigger picture of how, what their little project is going to affect all these other facets of life and biology. It's the impacts of the thing they're proposing in combination with all of the other things that are already affecting the issues at stake. So public health, organic farms in this instance, 
So what did the case conclude? Well, in the end, the, the, the judge granted us a permanent injunction against them under this particular document. So they are enjoined from doing any further activities under this document. They have to go back. They can't just fix this document. They have to redo, start from scratch. So it's such a significant shortcoming in their compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, that the judge is saying it's not sufficient to just go back and supplement this document, which is a pretty normal way of addressing these inadequacies, but they've got to go basically back through all the hoops. Right. They've got to start from the beginning again and redo the whole process because, and I don't have all the details here, but we did challenge even their process of how they how they went through scoping for the EIR and then the draft and the comments they got, which is another thing that the state agencies typically do. Caltrans does it. You know, they just... They just don't – they don't – they're required to address substantive comments. That's the, the catchphrase there. Right. And they they determine that usually anything the environmental groups say isn't substantive, so we're not going to comment on that. And, and they get away with doing these really slipshod documents, so they're not going to be able to do that with this. Well, here they didn't get away with it, but that's because you challenged them. Right, right. So this this time – the the court agreed with us. And it didn't look like it was going to happen. A year ago, there was a hearing, and it looked like he was going to maybe cite him on a technicality. But I guess the more time went by, the more he kept reading all of our briefs that we buried him under, then he he changed his tune and came back real. I mean, it caught us by surprise. We thought maybe he was going to say, okay, you got to fix this little part here. He just came in and said, you know, no, no more under this document. You got to do it over again. So what court was this in? Sacramento Superior Court in Sacramento. So that's State District Court. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly will get appealed, but we feel pretty good. The judge's ruling was so strong and so many sightings that he's used to back up his ruling. I, I, you know, I just don't. You know, maybe there's a technicality here or there that might get them, you know, they might have to fix. But I don't think the overall ruling is going away on appeal. If you're just tuning in, I'm Scott Greeson. I'm the conservation director with Friends of the Eel River. And I'm talking today with Larry Glass, president of the North Coast Environmental Center. So we've been talking so far about this case where you challenged the Department of Food and Agriculture's compliance with CEQA in this spray program. And you raise these two places where there's sort of an obvious overlap with the questions of the impacts of the commercial cannabis industry, which CDFA, among others, is now trying to begin to regulate in our region to everybody's riveted attention, I guess. You know, we've got this question of the baseline and of cumulative effects, and they're, they're related in some pretty important ways. And they seem to me, you know, I've been looking at this question of the Humboldt County Ordinance, pretty central to the question of how we look at, you know, what what a sustainable industry looks like, really. But I guess I want to ask you to talk a little bit about what the industry looks like in Trinity County. And then let's talk about what this might mean for cannabis regulation. Well, Trinity County is probably... 
of all the counties in California, it's probably the most problematic. It has the most per capita outlaw growth of any counties. I mean, that's partly because you have a huge and varied landscape with very, well, very few, few people. people. Yeah, thirteen thousand population in a county that's bigger than Humboldt, so, so. smaller than Arcata's population, right? Yeah. And spread over the whole county. So that's part of the reason. Lots of forested land, right? Remote, rugged, gave yeah. it easy cover. Seventy-five percent of Trinity County's public lands too. Right. So that's led to a lot of trespass growth in Trinity. But the real reason that Trinity is in such pitiful shape is that the law enforcement, Sheriff Haney in Trinity County, about four years ago, pretty much threw his hands up and said, this is a social problem. It's not a legal problem. I can't deal with this. He must have had his reasons for doing that. Well, I mean, I'm sure there were some financial reasons that made it difficult to but he could have asked for help rather than, you know, throwing his hands up. And I mean, Siskiyou County declared, asked the governor to declare their county an emergency. Right. Asked for an emergency declaration, just like he would have a fire had gone through the county and got assistance from the state. Trinity could have done that. Unfortunately, Sheriff Haney granted an interview with High Times Magazine to make that statement. And so that went that went international. So open for business. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So within a year, we had people showing up in Hayfork from all over the world because they'd read that oh, well, there's no law enforcement here cuz see for the black marketeer, that's the perfect mix. Right. Rather than a regulated market, if it's just wide open because there's no enforcement, that's perfect. That's where you can really make the money. Well, minimum costs, no pressure of enforcement or nobody's Nobody's yeah. enforcing anything. So that went on for several years. So can you – you, you describe the situation as pitiful, but – and I'm not asking for a, a file folder full of statistics, but can you just give us a rough sketch of – what you what you see and what you find alarming? Well, yeah, five thousand plus illegal grows in Trinity County, which I, I know is half what Humboldt County apparently Maybe a third. has, or yeah. a third. Yeah, but that's a conservative number. I mean, right. we don't. That's just that somebody's been able to spot from Google Earth. I mean, we don't. We have no idea, and you can't. Yeah, I mean, so that that's a conservative number. And the sort of social impact on the county with so many people that are just there for the growing season and then leave. So they use the resources, use the services, and then they're gone. And they don't contribute at all. They don't pay any taxes. They don't, you know, most of the time they truck in everything that they're using. They don't buy it locally. I mean, there's some of that that goes on. But, you know, the vast majority, you see these covered trailers and they're not just hauling stuff out. They're hauling stuff in, too. That's how all these illegal pesticides have wound up on the ground in Trinity County is they're imported in. They don't sell that stuff in Trinity County. You have to you have to smuggle it across the border to get it. So I'm not clear here, Larry. You're suggesting that the pesticides are being imported or that they're being imported in the soil. 
They're being imported into Trinity County and used in Trinity County. I've seen sites, cleanup sites in Trinity County where the ground was literally blue from rodenticide that had been just repeatedly thrown out on the ground. I assume the growers figure if they broadcast it out around their garden that it's only good for X number of weeks and then they got to do more. So they just keep rebroadcasting it and eventually the ground just starts turning blue from so much of it. And once again, no law enforcement, right. no, you know. So this gets us into a really, well, problematic is probably a weak word, but an area that we don't really have a lot of good data on, which is the, the association of the use of these rodenticides, the modern rodenticides, so-called third-generation rodenticides in, in conjunction with pot grows. And it's really clear that we have a major problem on the landscape. We now have another paper from Rod Gabriel and in the Integral Ecology Research Center showing very high levels of rodenticide poisoning in northern spotted owls. We also have evidence, you know, not just of problems in the predators, but of a widespread presence of these anticoagulant compounds in the prey base. And that that creates, you know, ripple effects through the ecosystem. We first found Absolutely. out about these problems when we were talking about how they'd found problems they just didn't anticipate in Pacific fishers. Remember the weasel family, which we now see, you know, the vast majority of the fishers found in the wild in Northern California have very high levels of rodenticides on board. It's a it's a very significant threat to the species. And of course, the northern spotted owl is already a threatened species right. in decline from the destruction of its habitat and the invasion of its more aggressive cousin, the barred owl. And now we're hammering it with pesticides. That, yeah. you know. and, and bless Murad Gabriel for bringing this to light. But he's only looked at that. We don't have anybody out there looking at what's the effect of Carbaryl or brand name 7 that's routinely used on everything out there. And then people smoke the crap. So then, you know, I don't know what happens with a bird that eats an insect that just ate the plant that was sprayed with Carbaryl. You know, I don't know, but I have a feeling that that and other chemicals like that are also spreading through the, I mean, the, the rodenticides are the, are the real bad actor that's easy to, to point a finger at because right. it's right there. But there's other ones out there, too. And once again, these illegal grows, and, and you can see how widespread this is because during the cannabis cup, my understanding is something like 75% of the entrants failed from pesticide contamination. And they had to, so that they've now reduced the standard, which is what the state did the same thing for pesticide uh, residues. Okay. So let me go back and say, hi, I'm Scott Greeson and I'm talking to Larry Glass. <laughs> and we're talking, of course, about weed. My understanding is a significant potential source of pesticide contamination in plants is actually the soil that people are purchasing, which in many instances appears to come from recycled wine country soil. So they may be getting just contaminated soil that's actually winding up in the plants and thus in the products. There's been definite fingers pointed at specifically an outfit out of Sonoma County that was marketing their their soil. And it was just, like you said, spent grape stuff, you know, and it was, you know, contaminated with that particular chemical. But, you know, people have this misunderstanding of 
tests for chemical contamination. Unless you're using a spectro mass spectrometer, yeah, Matt, that's the word yeah, I was looking right. for. Unless you're using a mass spectrometer to to analyze all these samples, most of these tests are testing for specific chemicals. Right. So if you're not testing for the other ones, you're not flagging them. Right. And nobody can afford that kind of test all the time. So a lot of this stuff just slips by. So they start looking for that one from the grape industry. Boom, they found it. Right. So my understanding is pretty much any time they specifically go out and look for a pesticide, they find it. And once again, it's like you said, because of – so people that think they're organic farming because they're buying soil that says, you know, organic, organic yeah. soil, it's not. You know, maybe it was composted, but it wasn't composted long enough to break down all the chemicals in it. So they have contaminated soil that they're bringing in. Right. That's another way that sudden oak death is spread around, too. So let's try to get back to these questions of baseline and cumulative effects, because these are really challenging ideas, especially in a situation where, as you said, we've got 5,000 grows we know about in Trinity County, 15,000 we know about in Humboldt County. One of my big concerns about the way that Humboldt County is proposing to very lightly regulate the cannabis industry is that it takes as its baseline in the county's analysis of the industry the existence of these 15,000 operations and says, well, that's where we start. So everything we do from here by requiring people to get permits makes things better. And thus, there's no impact from this proposed project, which is giving out as many permits as possible, as is wise. It's not really clear how many permits the county intends to give out. But there's a suggestion throughout the document that the solution to unpermitted, unregulated operations is to permit them. Bring them into compliance. And regulate them, which has a certain logic up to a point. But it doesn't take into into effect in Trinity County. You have a limited amount of water, especially up at the higher elevations where everybody wants to grow. You've only got so much water up there. So there's a question there, but it seems to me, looking at places with a good deal more water, like the South Fork of the Eel, which is really my major area of concern, you know, we've got a lot of water in the winter. And if we could get people, everyone, which is another question, to store their water and to forbear from diverting water during the dry season, there's so much water in most of the South Fork's watersheds that there's really no effective limit to be found there, I would contend, in the amount of grows you could permit. The limit in watershed capacity terms is sediment. You can't have fish in a creek that's dry, but you also can't have fish in a creek that's too full of mud. And, you know, I compare these things to a chronic problem like a heart attack. It'll kill you immediately. But even preventing the heart attack, you've still got not an acute problem, but a chronic problem like cancer. Humboldt's got a grading ordinance. They don't enforce. Trinity County doesn't even have a grading ordinance. So so Right. right there is at the root of what you're talking about. And that's also another serious problem. And nobody seems to have what's the baseline on that. Well, and this is where we get to this idea of cumulative effects and how do we ensure that the watershed remains capable of supporting salmon and steelhead and, you know, other species that we need and frankly have an obligation to. They're they're critical to our ecosystems. We wouldn't have the forests we have without salmon to feed them. But right now we are losing those fish really across the region and it's the the one two punch of the green rush on top of a drought. Oh yeah. 
that's that's really bringing these problems. That nutrient mix in the water is yeah. just death. And so we come back to this question of cumulative effects and you know, how do you look at the combination of what's already there and what you're proposing to do? And how do we create a system where we're actually going to not just mildly reduce the impacts of the existing industry, but actually get them down to a point where our watersheds can continue to support the species that have lived in them for millions of years? Right. And that seems to me the question we have yet to really answer and that at least in Humboldt's case we we don't have anything like an answer to yet. And there doesn't seem to be any attempt in Trinity County. They recently did scoping on their mitigated negative deck for growing operations there. We submitted along with another group extensive comments to that and we've never heard anything back from them. It just like you give them all this information, you give them the things to look at and then they just go Oh, and I don't know what they're doing. They seem to be going ahead and cutting licenses. They still don't have a valid EIR. And then when you call them on it, they go, oh, well, Prop 64 says we don't have to do CEQA. Which is true up to a point. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. So remember, two years ago, when you and I were going to the hearings all the time, or three years ago, everyone was saying, oh, we want to protect the environment. We've got to protect the environment. That's first on our list. Well, it's wound up being last on their list right now. Not a real high priority. (laughs) So there's another side to the question of sustainability and the scale of the industry, which really doesn't get talked about anywhere near enough, I think. And that's the question of what are we actually supplying? The legalized marijuana in California is a state market. You can't grow weed in Humboldt to sell to Georgia. You can't grow weed in Trinity to sell to Tennessee. It has to be for domestic consumption. All the permitted license stuff has to be for the California market. And that's pretty important because taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, nod, nod, wink, wink. The California Department of Food and Agriculture's (laughs) estimates of what's already being produced in California are about 12.5 million pounds which includes four and a half million pounds being produced in the Emerald Triangle. However, their best guess at the domestic market is one and a quarter million pounds of legal demand and another one and a quarter million pounds of illegal demand. So if they're right, that's two and a half million pounds. Humboldt and the other parts of the Emerald Triangle are already producing twice that much. Now, even if they're wrong, Humboldt and the rest of the Emerald Triangle are already producing all of that weed. And what's challenging now is that from what we can tell, all of the counties that are looking at licensing a commercial cannabis industry are looking at licensing a commercial cannabis industry large enough to supply the entire state with all its wheat. And I have a real problem with the logic of that. If San Mateo is going to be producing, you know, all the wheat we need, why does Trinity need to license all these farms? And I'm really concerned that we may be issuing more licenses, more permits than we really could or should sustain. But we have no mechanism for taking those back if they prove to be too many. Oh, no. Then it becomes a taking. So in the CDFA tipped their hand because they, in their environmental document, placed a limit on how many one acre grows a single party could have. But when the regulations were written by the other arm of the state, the Bureau of Cannabis, whatever, 
whatever it's called, they threw that out the window. So you can have unlimited amount of one acre grows under under one name. So clearly your point is is very wise and we are producing more than the state itself can consume. So clearly we must have an eye on on export, but there's no legal way to do that. So like I said, nod, nod, wink, wink, something's going on here. Right. But it it does seem like from either direction, it's very hard to make a compelling case that we're actually on track for a sustainable industry at this point. Well, thanks so much, Larry, for coming in. And just any final thoughts? We're obviously in the middle of a big storm here, but we hear from the public a lot. The environmental groups do. All of our member groups do at the, you know, at the NEC. And I just want the public to know that it may look like we're not doing anything, but we are trying and have been trying. We are struggling because this is a mega billion dollar industry that we're tackling here. And we're kind of, nobody wants to hear what we're saying. And we're having to speak pretty loud to get anybody's attention right now. Now. Everybody's well, really enamored with that tax revenue. There's another path, of course. Teddy Roosevelt suggested that if you want people's attention, you <laughs> right. speak softly but carry a decent-sized stick. Well, and that decent-sized stick could be court action. Right. We'll have to see. Well, this has been the Eco News Report. My name's Scott Greeson. I've been your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking, of course, with the inimitable Larry Glass, president of the North Coast Environmental Center. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call KHSU's listener comment line at 826 826- 6089. You can hear this broadcast again on the archived programs page of the station's website at khsu.org. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. And tune in again next week at the same time for the Eco News Report.